Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host Teresa Quinlan, I'm Rhys Thomas. We make up TNT. For those of you who don't know, TNT is our initials. Simple, right? Uh, we're here to explode the status quo. This series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently so we can start doing differently. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of TNTSQ. Our guest today is Jordan Gross. Jordan is joining us from New York, New York. So today we're definitely going to start spreading the news <laughs> about what you may ask. Well, it's going to be somewhat of an unfolding of thoughts and ideas. We left it up to him to come up with the inspiration. We have a bit of an idea, but we know it's always best when there's not too many boundaries and that creativity uh, run wild. A brief background on Jordan is he is a successful two-time author, best-selling book, Getting Comfy, Your Morning Guide to Daily Happiness, and the upcoming new release, The Journey to Cloud9. He is an executive coach of his company, Cloud9 Living, certified leadership coach under Marshall Goldsmith and soon to be two-time TEDx speaker. The original story was the Getting Comfy in the Young Comfy, and he has a new one coming up. It will be in March in New Jersey, and it's all about why self-help is not helping. Welcome, Jordan. We're so uh, happy to have you here on the show. Truly so exciting to be here chatting with you guys. You know, very grateful and excited to chat today. Hoorah. As you all know, listeners, we like to start with a question about what's your obsession, what's your passion. For this idea, we've spoken a little bit and we want to talk about something that's really important to all three of us. Theresa and I are talking about human connection a lot, the humans first group. And when we asked Jordan, the first thing he came up with was, I want to talk about how people focus is creating the genuine human connection and how this has helped me with my strategies, with my books and and the TEDx speak. So it seems like a perfect topic for all of us to dive into. So why don't you give us a bit of a background of why it's important to you, how it's helped shape your experience? For as long as I can remember, I've always had this tremendous soft spot for the human condition. And when I was seven years old, my first entrepreneurial endeavor was making a lemonade stand, right? I was a normal kid. I wanted to make a lemonade stand. It wasn't just any old lemonade stand. I wanted to make a lemonade stand because when I was seven, that was 2001. And like you said, Reese, I'm here in New York spreading the news. And the news in 2001 in September was not too great. The lemonade stand I made was September 20th, 2001, a week after 9-11. And I decided to make the lemonade stand because I saw people in my community who were devastated by this tragedy. And I saw people who were acting differently than they usually acted. And I was only seven years old. Because people were sad, because people were confused, even though I didn't know exactly what was going on, I took notice of that. And I asked questions and I wanted to see what I could do to help. So when I made this lemonade stand, it wasn't just to ooh and ah at the shiny quarters that I was going to get from the lemonade, but rather it was to spread awareness and, and to support the families in my neighborhood who were very severely affected by 9-11. So we ended up just sitting out on the corner all day long, selling lemonade and cookies, me and a couple of friends, got the neighborhood together, got written up in the paper, and that was really like my first taste of 
not just an entrepreneurial side of things, but also the social impact side of things and how what we can do can affect people in any small way, right? There I was selling lemonade, but the smiles I was able to create made those people who I saw were feeling different feel a little bit better, right? So since then, I've always been trying to do things that make people feel just a little bit better all the time. And uh, the other quick story is that it's funny, my dad used to tell me that because I'm from Long Island, New York, so not New York City. It's like an hour away. And whenever we used to come to the city, he'd always never want to take me back because by the end of our trip, he would always say that he had no money in his wallet because I just wanted to give every single homeless person the money from his wallet because they were asking for it. And I was just like, if it'll make them feel better, then yes, let's give that money. You know, so everything that I've done, and I've deviated from it at times, I sort of got off course, I followed a traditional path for a very long time, and I didn't focus on other people or community. And I was just kind of on this hamster wheel of I studied economics in college, and then I got into the corporate world, and I forgot about a lot of those principles. Here I am now at 25, very fortunate and very grateful that I got back off of the hamster wheel and I'm focusing on something that's a lot more based on relationship building, growing and connecting and things that are really my assets, which are communication, soft skills, focusing on other people to brighten their days. I think you mentioned something that's kind of universal, that as kids, we have a really strong intuition towards mm. what other people are experiencing and mm. a strong level of empathy towards that as well. Perhaps how we go about it, whether we're generous in our kindness or just can sit in silence with someone or, you know, we'll offer a hand or a solution. We have a journey of life. So, you know, when we get off the hamster wheel, sometimes it's intentional. We choose mm -hmm. to get off of it. Sometimes we just sort of lose our path a little mm. bit. Yeah. So you're talking about like the connection to the human spirits. What happened that you got off the hamster wheel? Was there a disconnection for you momentarily? My getting off the hamster wheel was actually a positive. So my hamster wheel was the corporate route, just going through the motions and running and running and running and thinking that my life was pre-designed based off of societal expectations mm -hmm. and what a 22-year-old economics athlete frat kid was supposed to be doing with his life. That's, that was the hamster wheel for me. It was going into consulting or investment banking, basically, for lack of a better cliche, selling my soul for a couple of years so that I can get a lot of money and live a good life when I was 30 or 40 years old. But very quickly, I realized that I don't want to wait to live a good life. I have the opportunity to live an amazing life right now. So getting off the hamster wheel for me was when I quit that world and decided to start writing and speaking and coaching and doing things that were more based off of relational aspect and inspiration and allowing other people to deviate from the norm as well and find their meaning and purpose too. So two things from that that I love. The story you talked about, how that changed from what you believe was expected of you, that lifestyle that was you thought you had to live up to and then mm -hmm. realizing it wasn't. That's a story that we hear a lot, but not very often from someone your age. So it's really uh, heartwarming to hear your whole story. I love the lemonade saying as well. So and the other difference is that your change was from a positive. I, I can't think of anyone else that we've spoken to who uses that uh, as yeah. the stepping up point. So what did you do when you, you decided you wanted to be happy in the moment? How do, you, how do you do that at 22 or whatever age you were? 
Okay, so two separate stories here. One is more of the experience that led me to make the full transition, and one is just the mindset that I was beginning mm-hmm. to develop. So starting with the mindset that I, that I was beginning to develop, I think I've always been very entrenched by stories of people who do different things, right? I was always interested in the story of the business owner who started out selling newspapers and then worked here and then worked there and then realized that they can start something because nobody's stopping them and they saw a problem and they needed to fix it, right? So I love those kind of stories. But what I also loved was reading the opposite, right? I loved reading the warning signs or the cautionary tales of the 40, 50 year old who shares a story that says, here I am, absolutely purposeless. I've been doing the same thing for I don't know how long, every day looks the same, and here I am waking up and I have no idea what to do with my life, so I decided to make this change. You know, the other stories that are always inspirational are like, God forbid, tragedy strikes and you realize I I get to take control of my life right now because I never know what can happen tomorrow, right? So hearing those stories too. And the common theme here of all three of those different things is that I was just constantly consuming different types of stories and nothing really happened in my life. So through talking to people and listening, I just kind of said, why would I wait for any of this? Why wait for years down the road? Why wait for, you know, tragedy to strike? Or conversely, why wait for the perfect alignment of the stars for me to do what I really should be doing, or at least start exploring what I really should be doing? So a lot of the times I say that my aha moment was the realization that I did not need an aha moment to switch things up a little bit. That's how my mindset started getting to that point through reading books, listening to podcasts, and, and just understanding other people. And then the more succinct story is that I was doing a management program with a restaurant group. So I thought I was doing a good job in following my passion, but ultimately I realized sometimes passion and purpose don't align. Restaurants were not going to be my thing. I, I But anyway, I was about four months into a program in New York City. It was very rigorous, very intense, kind of the opposite of what I thought I was getting myself into. I thought it was going to be creative and innovative and fun. I was working a crazy shift. It was like 3 p.m. to 5 a.m. because I was the closer that night. And I had just done a full day of managing the whole team. And I was young, 23 years old, just doing all these managerial tasks of people two and three times my age. So it's very emotionally draining, physically draining. And I was just about to wrap up for the day. I was doing our end of day paperwork and I was doing an inventory check of the meat that we had, raw meat. So I was in this meat freezer, full suit and tie, rubber gloves, just like getting my hands all down and dirty, getting in there, counting meat. And I came out and I took off the gloves and I had my clipboard And I go to turn the doorknob of the office where I had to enter in those end of day meet numbers and it was locked. So I peeked inside the window and I looked onto the desk and I realized that the keys were right there. So I locked myself out of the one place that I needed to be in that entire restaurant and I had no way to get in. I didn't know how to pick a lock. Nobody was around. People were coming in for their morning shifts in an hour. So in an hour, somebody was going to let me in. But at that time, I just didn't know what to do. Instead of panicking, I just started kind of chuckling. And I was laughing about 
why this was even a problem. And I was laughing about what I was doing. And I was laughing about what impact I was making on the world, which was virtually none. I was basically at this upscale restaurant, just feeding the, the rich. Whereas my whole life, I've metaphorically always been trying to feed the poor. I think besides the meat inventory, I was going to type in some guest complaints about, you know, their signature cocktails not tasting right that night. And, you know, I just kind of said, this is, this is not me. This is not what I'm here to do. I need to make a change. And, you know, after getting out of that meat freezer and having that door be locked shut on me, I came into work the next day. I think I got like a couple hours of sleep. I don't think that affected my decision. I think I still would have made it on a full night's rest, but came into work the next day and I just said, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but it's time for me to go. I asked myself three very simple questions. If I leave, am I going to be homeless? No. If I leave, am I going to be starving? No. If I leave, are people going to love and support me? And the answer to that was yes. No, no, yes meant you should probably go and figure out something else if you're that miserable doing what you're currently doing. There's nothing like asking yourself some first world problems or finding yeah. yourself thinking about them and going, oh yeah, first world problems and acknowledging yeah. that yeah. to help you make a, a poignant shift or a necessary shift or yeah. just really be objective about what's really going on. I love that. Exactly. You, yeah, you and I were always... I, I always was like this. I always was aware of people's stories and I uh -huh. was always curious about how, and I was, and yeah. I love that word because I love that word when people describe it of themselves because it's uh -huh. a sense of knowing of themselves. Yeah. yeah. But it also uh, indicates that there has been time spent reflecting on who you have been from a young age and acknowledging, totally. oh, I've, I've kind of always been like that. That's totally. awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And so I am wondering about, have you always been a genuine connector with other people? Has it always been easy for you to do? And maybe the second question is why? When I was an athlete growing up and I grew up, I was a little bit bigger than everybody else. And I really cared about sports a lot more than everybody else. But I also, like, like you said, Teresa, I cared about everybody else. So I was always a captain. There's that always word again. Every team I can remember, I was always a captain because I was told that I had this sort of maturity from a very young age. And obviously I, I attribute that to my parents and my people around me, teachers and things like that, and just buying into what I was being told. But one thing I remember is that when I was a young soccer player, I saw people on my team who weren't necessarily getting the playing time that they thought they deserved or that they wanted. Right. And I was a goalie. So I played every minute of every game and mm -hmm. I would just, you know, go up to them and put my arm around them and say, Hey, you're going to get your chance. Right. Or you get your opportunity. And one of my buddies very clearly, I remember this the next day he got put into one of the games and he scored the game winning goal. Right. So it was just things like that, that made me realize like, wow, there is so much power in the little things, in little connection, in small words of support, wisdom, advice, that you have no idea whether or not they're going to change somebody else, but you better be willing to try to change somebody else's day because if you don't, then nothing's going to happen. And you ask why I think it comes easy. Growing up, I'm not really sure. 
Mm. I do think it had to do with my parents being great influences on me, with my coaches being great influences. The other thing that stands out is sort of like this underdog mentality that I had. Mm. Like I said, I was bigger than everybody else. Which I, I grew up like overweight and heavy. Nobody, I didn't look like an athlete. So every sport that I went into, nobody thought that I was going to excel at. So I was always trying to prove people wrong. But what I realized was that I couldn't prove people wrong on my own. I always needed support of my coaches, support of my teammates, because no sport is an individual sport because I didn't play tennis, I didn't play golf or anything like that. Because I knew that ultimately at the end of the day, as a team, I wanted to win. It wasn't about me. I think that was just really helpful and valuable was understanding that I had to use the people around me. And that's always followed me even as an entrepreneur, as a writer, whatever I'm doing now, I don't even know what I call myself. There is this need to have people support what I'm doing because if I just do something all for me, all about me, mm-hmm. it's not going to get the trophy at the end of the day, just like mm-hmm. when I was an athlete. It's so refreshing to hear, Ariel, the word that comes up when you're talking about your story, your experience, your parents, your coaches, all these influences on you. I was kind of thinking just, you know, sounds kind of exceptional. You know, that's the word that just keeps coming into my mind. So refreshing to hear it. And this TED talk that you mentioned to us, the topic of that is something that's going to be really exciting for everyone listening, but also for the trees and I to hear about. So yeah. remind us again, the title and uh, where, where you're going to be and when. Yeah, of course. So the title is why is self-help not helping me? It's going to be in New Jersey at Bergen Community College on March 3rd from 9am to 1pm. Before I dive into the talk, I actually just want to circle back to the theme of human connection and explain briefly for anybody listening who wants to give a TED talk, if you guys want to give a TED talk, how I was able to get this one, as well as the talk I gave about getting comfy, because it is 100% human-based, 100% relationship-based, and 100% what I call creative value-adding. The story is this. Have you guys ever read or heard of the book, The Third Door, or that concept by Alex Benayan? No. I've heard of the concept, yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain the TED Talk as I explain the concept. In his book, The Third Door, just a brief overview, Alex says that you can get whatever you want in life by going through one of three doors. And if you imagine yourself trying to get into a bar, you can get in one of three doors. The first door would be to wait online and ultimately get to the front of the line and the bouncer checks your ID, and then you get in. You get into the bar, you wait, and you wait. And honestly, maybe sometimes you don't get in, but that's the first door. That's like the obvious route, the obvious choice. So with the TED Talk, the first door would be to look for some talks, apply online, and wait, and wait, and maybe you get in, but maybe you don't get in, right? That's the obvious way you're gonna go get a TED Talk. Door number two, for the bar would be to maybe you know the bouncer right so you get to cut the line you get to maybe you know a bartender so they put your name on a list and you get to get inside that way or maybe you know the owner so he takes you through a back entrance or something or she takes you through a back entrance so with the ted talk door number two would be maybe you know the organizer of the event or maybe you have this really engaged following already and the TEDx organizer comes to you because they want you to speak at the event. That's door number two. It's a little bit easier for you. Then there's door number three. And door number three at the bar is you and your buddies get to the bar 
and you don't want to wait online. You don't know anybody who owns the bar, but one person is talking to a security guard and the other person sneaks by without being seen and opens up a back window and goes downstairs and gets a couple of kitchen outfits and disguises you as chefs and then all you get inside and you look like chefs at first but then you change your outfit to back into your your bar attire and the next thing you know you're in the bar right so that's door number three it's using this creative way to add value to the situation, add value to yourselves in order to get in. For the TED Talk, I I saw an opportunity for creative value adding by utilizing the people who are involved with TEDx event. For example, in the first talk that I gave, I gave it at a middle school. I said, okay, who is organizing this event? How can I do research about her in order to understand what would be helpful in her life? And then what can I provide her with and her audience in order to give a really effective pitch about, and I'm sorry for the sirens, that's New York City, in order to show her that what I have is of value to her and her audience. So that's what I did. And I said that my morning routine book would be very beneficial for students coming into school every day and they'd be energized and and positive right when they got in the door. That was my third door. It was by setting myself apart from the rest of the applicants who just used the application site and tried to pitch their own story, right? So I built this relationship and I did the same thing with this talk coming up in March. I reached out to the host directly, shared my story, how it would be helpful and was invited back. Why is self-help not helping me? The story is this. When I wrote my first book, Getting Comfy, it was my, my version of a traditional self-help book. I shared my morning routine, which was a five-step acronym, C-O-M-F-Y, and I did interviews, and I did research, and I reflected, and I told stories. That was the book I came out with, and it was, it was good. It did well. It was fine. It was fun, but there was a big problem because some of my best friends didn't read the book. Mm. They supported me. But they basically told me, Jay, we don't want to read your self-help book. We know too much about you. We don't want you telling us how to live our lives when sometimes you don't know how to live yours. We don't like self-help. We don't want to read self-help because we don't like being told what to do. So I really processed that. And as I was coming up with the idea for the journey to cloud nine, I did the same thing. I did a ton of research and I did a ton of interviews and I came up with some findings, some concepts that I could share. And then I was at this crossroads. Do I do the traditional self-help model or can I do something different? Mm -hmm. And I decided to do something different because I wanted my friends to read this book. So what I decided to do was create a fictional story about the lessons that I uncovered through doing all of these interviews. So for my friends, I'm sort of tricking them into reading this book by making this enjoyable, entertaining story and hiding the lessons throughout. What happens in the story can either lead to this for the character or lead to that for the character. So it's up to you to interpret for yourself whether or not you wanna feel the way that they do or not feel the way that they do and live your life accordingly. That's the background. And and then this overarching question, why is self-help not helping me? I think for my friends, they really helped me with the answer, right? And and even myself, because I was reading a lot of self-help And again, I got to this point where I was reading so much that advice started to get contradictory and I was overwhelmed and I was trying to implement too much. And if it wasn't working, I said, what's wrong with me? And I think self-help doesn't help us a lot of the time 
because we think that it's this uniform advice that's being directed at one particular kind of person and we are that person. Mm -hmm. But what self-help does not do is broaden the advice to different types of individuals or even allow us to be introspective and realize how the advice is going to help our particular situation. What I'm saying in this TED Talk is by reading fables and allegories and parables, shamelessly plugging my, my upcoming book, the idea is that by reading a story, a couple of things are going to happen. You're going to enjoy the journey of that story so much more than you're going to you know, just try to get lessons out of it. You're going to get an emotional connection to the characters and the plot. You're going to reduce some of the stress that's associated with self-help because you're no longer going to feel like you need to take something away right now and feel better or do better. And then last but not least, you'll be able to really like spark your imagination and creativity as you read. You're also honoring what you said earlier is you didn't need to have some aha moment. You actually learned your transformation from the stories of other people. Because what is critical about storytelling is that when we listen to it, we bring all of our experiences with it, right? So we see ourselves as a reflection in someone else's story. Mm -hmm. And so we connect with certain parts, certain characters, and certain lessons can be extracted based on what we've experienced over our past life. And so you're right. Some people's stories will land with us and others will just be like, well, that was a cool character, but I have no idea what that's like. I, I can't relate to them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have another character where we'll be crying with them and we'll be laughing with them and we'll be mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And that is exactly what I need to do. That's exactly right. what they did. I know is absolutely going to work for me. And then we'll have all sort of variations of that as well. That's the power of storytelling is it doesn't feel like we're being told. It feels like Mm -hmm. we're being shown. Yeah, that's so true. We're being shown. And then ultimately it's so much more empowering because you get to make your own discoveries after being shown. And then it's like, wow, I came up with this all on my own. You know, I didn't have this self-help book that told me I need to make a morning routine that focuses on COMFY. It's no, I read this, this book and I've realized that I needed to do this in my life because that's what I uncovered from reading the book. So, so the different stories, does each one have a different message or are they different ways of showcasing the same message so like Teresa was saying if I read this story it'll connect with Mm -hmm. me it might not connect with you so maybe story number two is what I'm looking for so you're being shown in a different way that's actually personal to you which is exactly what you said is the problem with self-help books that they're a generalistic viewpoint without being any personal connection what I did was after hearing everybody else's stories for almost a whole year I tried to weave in the most important sort of cloud nine moments, right? These euphoric moments that people had. And I I highlighted those throughout the book. And I also had some cloud nine concepts that people always mentioned when they experienced this sort of cloud nine life. So I didn't share specific individual stories, but rather I tried to incorporate all of the stories into this one character's life span. The book itself documents a character, his name is Jerry, from the time he's nine years old all the way to 59 years old. And it walks through his life. And again, in hearing so many other people's stories, I saw myself all the time. So Jerry is very much me. It's very much a lot of these people who I heard from. But Jerry lives two different lives in the book. And in real life, 
he based it off of societal expectations. He was on that hamster wheel going through the motions much like I was in my earlier years. And what ultimately happens is that he is 59 years old and he's depressed and you don't really know why because he's got money and he's got a good job and you realize that it's because he always made decisions based off of what other people wanted him to do never based off of his own heart and his intuition but what the book does is it also juxtaposes jerry's real life with his cloud nine life and in each of those pivotal moments in his life he's able to relive what could have happened had he made the decision that was more based off of his heart and his intuition. And that's the cloud nine life where he hops off of the hamster wheel and does his own thing. What is so awesome is the thread that connects all of us is no one wants to live a life that is rooted in expectations of other people. Everybody mm-hmm. on the planet, yeah. I am confident, everyone right. on the planet <laughs> right. would much rather, and maybe has a yearning for it if they're not there yet, live the life that is their life to live exactly Mm -hmm. i cannot agree more yeah all right so we know that we cannot hold our stories in (laughs) we have to share them with the world yeah we have to perhaps maybe try to be more interested than interesting Mm -hmm. so that we can hear other people's stories as a foundation of potentially connecting more with other human beings on the planet right so we like to challenge the status quo Mm -hmm. so i want to challenge you on the response to this question because this is your gift to the audience yeah we want people to be able to start thinking differently and you presented a bunch of concepts and stories for people to start considering but we also want them to start doing something differently ah yeah what would you say is one thing people can start doing differently now to yeah. have greater genuine human connections? So this is something that I've started to do every single day. I, I have two different names for it. One is my cloud nine moment. And the other one I call it a zenith. And every night before I go to bed, I reflect on the day and I pick out the happiest part of my entire day. When I do that, it does two things. One, it makes me realize that no matter what happened, I had this unbelievable thing to reflect upon. And then also, no matter what's going to happen tomorrow, I'll have this amazing thing to look forward to. The reason why that is so beneficial for for human connection is because almost all the time, those moments are rooted in relationships that I have in helping somebody, in saying hello to somebody, in receiving a message about something that I did, in in getting a response to a story that I wrote or or a talk that I gave. When you reflect in that kind of way to think about when you were the happiest, you just realize all the people in your life almost all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just going to be so, so beneficial for you. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, we wrap up the show with our rapid fire Q&A, but yeah. not until we let people know how they can get in touch with you. Um, you're on LinkedIn, so people get in touch with you that way. Uh, journeytocloud9.com website. Mm-hmm. Any other way people yeah. can get in touch with you? Medium is always me as well. But I'm so excited for these uh, rapid fire questions. I've been, I've been waiting the whole time for them. <laughs> Hopefully not practicing, although. No, not practicing. <laughs> I actually... I actually purposely did not listen to these 
when I was listening to other interviews. Okay, fantastic. They are 10 statements and there's two choices to each of them. Interpret mm -hmm. them as suits you best. Let's do it. Number one, manager or leader? Leader. Active or reactive? Active. Black and white or gray? Gray. Optimist or realist? Optimist. Canada or England? Canada. Number six, heart or head? Heart. Empathy or assertiveness? Empathy. Introvert or extrovert? That's the hardest question for me. Ambivert? <laughs> Amazing. We're going to have to use that as an option soon because it seems to be... No, that's a cop-out. If I really had... I, I, I truly think I'm an extrovert. Beautiful. Yeah. Logical or emotional? Emotional. Innovation or process? Innovation. You did it. Congratulations. Yeah. Pass. Thank you. <clears throat> you yeah. did it with such conviction so easily. There was no pausing. I'm super ENFJ, so I feel like that... Oh. Or not super E. I could be ENFJ or INFJ, depending on the experience. <laughs> do you have to do AMFJ now because you're an ambivert? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, I wish that was an option. You know, this was a really exciting opportunity for both of us. So thank you for joining us today and for gifting us with your wisdom. Because I think for me, sometimes when someone is young in age on earth, it can be a little bit refreshing, sometimes a little bit surprising. Mm -hmm. But for me, there's an element of there is wisdom that exists in you that's being carried forward from somewhere else mm -hmm. when it comes in a young person. Sometimes for me, that's a trigger to pay attention. Thank you. Well, thank you guys so much. This was equally as exciting, probably more exciting for me to get to share a little bit about my journey. And I hope it was helpful. I hope it was a little bit inspirational and, and honestly, just to be in theme and aligned with what I always want. I, I hope it just brightened your days just a little bit. It certainly did that. It certainly did all of those things. And I just wanted to thank you for sharing all those, those stories. And it is interesting that it's clearly that storytelling, understanding other people's stories, creating your own stories is such a common thread throughout everything that you've done. And yeah. the fact that you were so free and open with these Every one of them was a great story. Everyone was like, well, what's going to happen here? Oh my God, what, what happened in the freezer? And, um, so yeah, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And like Teresa said, refreshing, exceptional, inspiring, hopeful. Best of luck with the book. I know the TED Talk is going to be amazing. We'll definitely have to check that out. And uh, exciting to catch up with you again soon and to find out yeah. what the next chapter is going to be. Absolutely. Thank you both so, so, so much. This was amazing. best way for us to find out if we are giving you, our listener, the value of your time by helping you think differently so you can do differently is if you write a review and give a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on.